Hi, I'm Will, and welcome to the World Class Podcast. In this special World Mental Health Day episode, we speak openly and honestly about mental health, mental illness, and caring for mental health and well-being, answering questions from students all around the world to help raise awareness and destigmatize and normalize these discussions. The range of topics we cover includes depression and anxiety, imposter syndrome, suicide, grief, schizophrenia, and caring for yourself while supporting others, and more. This episode is hosted by Joe, and our guests are Adrian and Georgina, and they're joined in conversation by Kyle, a current student on our BSE Computer Science programme. Joe is the Associate Director of Student Life at the University of London. The mission of the Student Life team is to provide an excellent, well-rounded student experience to empower students with the skills and knowledge they need to succeed and flourish academically, professionally and personally. Adrian is a Student Health and Wellbeing Manager at the University of London and the Warden of Connaught Hall, a University of London Intercollegiate Hall of Residence. With a background of 17 years medical practice and a training in emergency medicine, Adrian's professional interests lie in human factors and crisis resource management, advancing equity in higher education, well-being in the LGBTQ community and mindful compassion. He's a fellow of the RSA and of the RSM. Georgina is a student wellbeing manager and is part of the team leading on mental health and wellbeing at the university. As a therapeutic practitioner, Georgina has 10 years experience facilitating writing for wellbeing groups in mental health, education and community settings. She holds an MSc in creative writing for therapeutic purposes with certificates in counselling skills, bereavement awareness, applied suicide intervention skills training and is a mental health first aider. Kyle is a University of London student studying the BSc in Computer Science by Distance Learning from Malawi. He's also a regular student blogger and shares an interest in mental health. Links to the resources discussed in this episode can be found in the description. Hello everyone, Um, I'm Jo and it's my pleasure today to welcome Georgina and Adrian who are wellbeing managers here at the University of London and they're with me here at Senate House And I'm delighted to say we also have a computer science student, Kyle, who's joining us online from Malawi. Hello, Kyle. Hi. Kyle, you you kindly, um, you've you've put together some questions and some perspectives for our experts here, uh, Georgina and Adrian. And uh, would you mind getting us started? Of course. Um, These questions are sort of personal to me like so it's easier to speak about these things so I'm kind of hoping that there are people listening that sort of relate Um, so my first question was it's it's about isolation Um, you guys it's 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 sort of well versed and well knowledge that we should speak out about our issues and our problems but the second my mental health declines I just isolate right there's a dissonance between sort of knowing that I should be reaching out but I, I don't want to in the moment, right? I just wanted to know why that is and, and how can I sort of battle against it? Yeah, that's that's a really good question. And I feel like a lot of people are going to really resonate with that. Um, I certainly have before. And I think there's lots of things that, that influence that. As we've kind of said in the intro, there's still a lot of stigma surrounding mental health and it's it's progressed so much in the last five to ten years but there's also a lot of conversation around positivity and being sort of relentlessly positive and that if you're not feeling that way all of the time that 
there's something wrong with you as a person. And I feel like that kind of feeds into sometimes this thing of of closing up and and not reaching out straight away. It's a very vulnerable thing to do. Um, and especially if you've been raised in an environment or you're in an environment where it doesn't feel safe to express yourself. Yeah, I, I think I, th- I think you're right. And I think actually for, for many of us, it's a really kind of natural instinct, you know, when we're feeling unwell or hurt to kind of want to roll up into a ball and just be alone. And I mean, especially for maybe the 30 percent of the population or so who, like me, are high in introversion. Actually, that's it really is a kind of a go to behavior. And actually, I think it's 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 okay. You know, it can be a helpful, adaptive thing to do in some circumstances. And I think it it can become it can maybe become problematic when we're not feeling better after a day or two of, you know, having some alone time. And then we don't say, hang on, this isn't working. Maybe I need to reach out for some for some help at this point. So for me, I think it's about saying, OK, it's it's OK to have a duvet day. That's that's all right. Um, that's allowed. But if I'm still feeling like this a few days later, maybe I need to try something else. Yeah, that's a really good point, actually. All of us need different things at different times. And what we need changes over time as well, depending on on what's going on. But I think also like feeding into that is there's a lot of focus at the moment on self-sufficiency and self-care and not as much focus on the role of community and others in in helping and healing. It is really important to have a support network. You know, humans haven't got this far and haven't survived through being alone. It's through helping each other and it's a really natural thing to want to do um as well so maybe there's something there of oh I feel like I shouldn't need any help because I've read all these things and I should be able to self-regulate and I should be able to heal on my own um so having that sort of knowing when okay I need some alone time and knowing when actually I think I think I could do with someone to chat to and that's okay I think sometimes knowing who you're going to reach out to and how mm-hmm. can be helpful too because when you're feeling rubbish, often it can it can be kind of one thing too much to have to not only think I'm going to reach out for help, but also think, oh, who and how and when. Maybe having a plan yeah. is uh, is a, is a good good strategy too. Yeah, it's interesting to know that it's it's sort of okay. I mean, I did touch on the fact that quite a lot of people are introverted. I would I would say I'm quite introverted. So to hear, um, it's okay. To, to have that sort of reaction sometimes is, is good. It's good. Do you find it difficult, Kyle, to actually speak and ask for help when you're feeling isolated? I do. I do. And it, it, it sort of touched on what Georgina was saying of, um, I don't want to be seen as someone who is struggling, you know? Um, it's sort of easier to, I don't know how to say it, but it's sort of easier to just deal with it myself in the background so no one has to see that I had to deal with it sort of thing um, but this will this will tie on to, to some of my other questions but I, I don't want people to see me in a way that's sort of not exactly who I am right because when I'm down I, I don't think that that's the best version of myself and I don't I don't want to put myself across as as you know half of who I think I am 
That's so interesting. And I totally get that. And I've definitely been the kind of person who who wants to sort of protect my image in some way. Um, but there's also something to be said for for accepting that part of yourself. And it is part of who you are. And when you're feeling low, that that doesn't that doesn't make you half of who you are. It's it adds to it. And I love this idea in life of paradoxes and we have the light and we have the shadow, we have the highs, we have the lows, and that's what makes you a whole person. Um, so being able to sort of, to treat yourself more like a friend, like something that I find helpful is if I picture someone I really care about struggling and they're thinking, I don't want to be seen this way and I don't want to I don't want to be a burden or whatever it is that would make me feel really sad that they were going through that on their own and I would want them to come and speak to me and so I kind of when I'm feeling low I'll apply that to myself I'll be like I'm finding it really hard to chat but I kind of know that I need to now and I know that someone I care about would want me to and would accept me as that and vulnerability is a strength it's you know from a place of vulnerability we we not only accept ourselves we also teach others that it's okay to be themselves as well so there's something really inherently valuable about being able to open up a bit about how things are going and opening a conversation with someone else I think we all resonate with what you said, Carl, and how you feel. Everyone feels they have to be performative or they have to be this version that that they we all think that other people want to see us as. Because I'm I'm an extrovert. But I so because of that, I feel that people expect that. So I maintain that even when I don't have those extrovert days. My natural personality is very extroverted. But of course, light and shade, up and down, I don't feel like that all the time. But I think it's expected of me, so I must be that Joe. So you have some other questions for us. I've got loads. So I I recently became a Talk Campus buddy, which is a peer-to-peer sort of support group app, uh, sort of the intermediary between uh, casual conversation and like professional support. And... I am someone who struggles with mental health. So I've had to take time off the app from listening to other people's um, mental health issues. And I just wanted to know, as people who deal with this, uh, you know, at a very higher level than me, um, if you are someone who people come to with their mental health problems, uh, and you are someone who maybe is suffering yourself or maybe the problems that they've come with are a little bit too heavy for you. How do you balance your own problems with theirs and, and that sort of taxing feeling you get mentally? It sounds, um, it sounds Carl, like you're, you know, you're, you're finding your way with this already. You've identified that there are, there's time that sometimes you need to take time away from, from the role. And, you know, in a in a professional role, it's essential to establish boundaries and to you know be clear about what time you can give to 
either the role or to a particular client or person or whatever term you use to, to describe the people you're supporting. And of course, it's it's so much harder to do that if you're supporting friends and family. But actually, the same the same principles apply. That it's it's okay to say, look, I can be here this time for this long, and I can't be here all the time, twenty four hours a day. And I think you know it takes it takes time to work out what um, what your own boundaries should be, and it's a kind of it's a process for all of us. And I think alongside sort of alongside boundarying the work it's also important to have a clear sense in your own mind of what activities you need to do to support your own well-being and these are kind of routine things that you do all the time and so um, I guess you know a good structure would be something like the five ways to well-being you might have come across the the five ways to well-being which are to connect be active take notice keep learning and to give um, and I, I could give an example from my own life, not as a prescription for anyone else's, but I guess as evidence that this is something that people really do. Um, I have in in my schedule every day, I have time set aside for reading. So I guess that's keep learning uh, time for mindfulness meditation, which I guess would be um, uh, to take notice uh, and time for the gym, which is keeping active. And I'm very fortunate that my everyday life gives me opportunities all the time to connect with other people um, and and to give to others um, and you know for me that's that's help helps me continue in the role that I that I do it can it can be really easy when you're not taking enough notice to internalize other people's experiences as your own and so something that I do when I when I leave someone I've been supporting is do things like I will journal afterwards and I'm journaling to come back to myself and to separate what is mine and what is someone else's because being alongside someone is is really important but the key there is that you're alongside you know you're in parallel which means that there is a line between you and them so it can be when, when you first start helping others, um, whether you're volunteering or, or anything like that, it, it can, it, you have to learn that line of, I can know that I am in a good place and I can also be alongside someone who isn't. And those things can exist together. So I might journal, I might sort of think in my mind say so I commute to say if I'm I'm getting the tube home I might say okay when I go through this barrier I have I've left the baggage there that's there I go through this barrier and I come back to myself and I do whatever I'm gonna do and Kyle when you you take time on the app and obviously we thank you for that because the talk campus app is something that we're in partnership with for our University of London students to have access 24-7, 365 days a year to reach out and to talk to others and obviously to talk to um, professionals if if need be, obviously escalates. And somebody like yourself, who uh, my understanding is you've done the, um, the counselling course so that you can support our students. So you're amazing for doing that. Um, but know that also that when you're on the app, if you feel like you need help, that's okay. There are others there that will be able to help you. 
do you find that difficult to do? Yes. And, and that was, that was sort of the preface of like my first sort of question is if I'm, if I'm someone who, because it tags me, right? I'm tagged as a buddy. So it, you, you can already tell that I'm someone who's been through the course. So to some, to see a buddy asking for help was sort of my concern really. Mm. Well, in sort of like what I would kind of say, say to that is you're, you're leading by example in that way and a really important thing if you are going to be helping others and volunteering your time in that way is you have to be able to seek support yourself especially if you're going through things and you're struggling and you know on this podcast and in others I I'll I'll disclose things that I've been through when they're helpful and I think it's really powerful for someone in a position where they're in a helping role to be able to say, you know what? I struggle sometimes too. And we all do. It you can be, you know, an absolute expert in your field and still struggle. Um so in terms of like having your tag there as buddy, if you if you can become a bit more comfortable with asking for your help yourself, people will see like, oh, look, he's this but also he's this and there's something really whole about that and gives other people permission to be themselves and not not mask so much and Carl I just want to add that everybody that works in a well-being or mental health space has that sort of system in place where they have support just in this room alone Adrian leads a a working group where we come together regularly to share and support each other because we work in this space and Georgina's obviously on the front line day to day with our students and she speaks to Adrian for support and guidance and we we all do and I know that you have that same support as well don't you so no one no one in the room is a counsellor or a therapist but if if you are a counsellor or a therapist you have to be in therapy yourself yeah you have to be in therapy and, and have a supervisor someone you do brief with so that was such a good thing to mention we're all part of a group and we support each other we're not here in our roles isolated and taking in some really difficult things from others and then and then not speak not speaking about how we're doing as well they have to coexist that's that's what makes this work sustainable yeah i guess something else that may be maybe um relevant here is that uh, one of my roles is as the warden of a student hall of residence mm-hmm. so i have 240 students um whom i support particularly closely and uh for i think it was for university mental health day about six or seven years ago I made a video about my own experience of depression and since making that video the number of students who felt able to speak with me about their own experiences has been much higher because they know that I'm not a kind of a you know some bizarre alien being that doesn't experience um, difficult times too. Yeah. Would you like to ask another question to the panel? Of course. Um So I've been down uh, and when I was really like the lowest point for me, uh, I was, I was seeking help. I was, I was, 
tried, I was, I didn't want to be in the position I was in, um, and I was seeking help and, uh, it, it just wasn't, it, it wasn't for me. And I remember a line in a song and I've even, I've even typed it out here. And the, the line is, uh, they say every life is precious, but no one cares about mine. And that was, that hit me. It resonated with me a little bit because it's so easy to just say, uh, oh, if you're going through this, this helps. But it wasn't helping for me. It felt overgeneralized. It felt like maybe it helped some people, but it didn't help me in particular. So my question is, what do you do if you're in a position where you're seeking help, but it's not working? Adrian, would you like to take that? Yeah, I, I think there's there's so much to to unpack here. Um, and in a way, your experience, Kyle, speaks to the the heterogeneity of the challenges that we experience with our well-being and of mental illness um, and and of the the kind of the inadequacy in a way of medical science and language to describe and categorize and understand the unique individual experience that each of us has of of whatever we're going through and i i think you know maybe an example is that um depression is one label that lots of people receive as a diagnosis but actually what each of those people is experiencing is different and unique to the to the person and a doctor might try two or three or four different tablets to treat depression if that seems to be the right course of action for that person before they find something that actually is useful and the same could be applied to talking therapies and you know any other number of interventions for whatever condition someone might be diagnosed with and that's before you even think about situations where maybe there isn't a diagnosis maybe actually times are just really hard and and this isn't a disorder as as such and I think I think your question also kind of highlights some of the tension between the fact that most practitioners in this space really do see their clients or patients as individuals and they really do genuinely care for the people that they work with. But they're also working within systems where treatments and interventions have to be commissioned at a population level or at a community level. And uh, on the basis of the best available evidence for the greatest number of people and that by definition doesn't always work for every every individual so you know there are so many tensions here and I, I think for me the the message that should should come out from your experience is that we should we should try to engage with with the interventions and treatments that are available but also be mindful that not every treatment or intervention is right for every person there are alternatives and to keep keep going back keep knocking on that door until actually you find the thing that's going to work for you because there will be something and to pick up on that and what you've been saying around you know essentially different people need different things and something that I found in my experience when I've experienced depression and anxiety is that I've had to try lots of different things and while there is great guidance out there and things that people can recommend it's also really worth bearing in mind that you are the expert on yourself so you can you can have advice and recommendations and and try things and you will know what is working for you and being able to seek some of those answers from yourself instead of relying on other people to know you better than you do. So I found that 
that I had to try lots of different things and say, say if we take exercise and, and that's really good for, for your health. I tried lots of different things that did not work for me. I tried running, I tried HIIT workouts, um, all kinds of things, did not enjoy at all whatsoever. Um, and then I decided to go for a swim and that something shifted. I was like, oh, oh, this is true. Mo- moving your body is good for you and it does feel good afterwards. But none of these ways I was doing before were good for me. So it could have been really easy for me to discount that as something that would work for me. And then I tried something and, and thought, oh, great. It can be really frustrating when all you want is to feel better and you want that to happen quickly. And sometimes it's not quick and you've got to be really patient with yourself and try things out and be committed to that. And that can be really difficult, especially if you're not feeling motivated. Kyle, I mentioned um, at the top of the podcast that you have written, um, you're a student blogger um, as well. And I know that you have written a blog um, and actually hopefully we can tag that into the podcast when it goes out as well. Um, on imposter syndrome and I believe you have a question around that I do uh, and just just to make sure everyone knows Im- imposter syndrome is the feeling of being perceived as a fraud or an imposter so that would be maybe uh, assuming that your fellow students uh, think that you're smarter or more talented than you actually are it's sort of you feel like a fraud in your environment and um I, in my research for, for writing that blog, I, I came around some, some ways of sort of handling it, but I did want a more sort of professional sort of approach. And, and I think that a lot of students deal with this. So I think that it would be, it would be a good question to put in here just to, just to bring it to the attention because there's probably someone listening who doesn't even know what imposter syndrome is and they're probably going through it. So my question would just be for it is is how do you deal with this sort of imposter feeling yeah um so something that i found helpful is thought work and being able to um challenge the thoughts that you might have so if you're feeling like you're not deserving of where you are and that somehow you've gotten somewhere by total fluke that every single thing you've done has been a massive mistake that no one's found out yet. That's incredibly unlikely. Um, If we're talking about, for example, getting onto a program of study, you would have had to apply for that and you would have had to have that accepted. And that is based on your application. So being able to sort of, when you have these thoughts, just to be able to catch them and look at them and offer something different. So being able to say, oh, I have achieved this or I've succeeded in this. And that is because I worked for it and I deserve to be here. So you don't necessarily, you know, if it doesn't feel comfortable to be like, and this is because I'm amazing and I'm an expert and I'm all these things. It can just be, oh yeah, I worked hard on that. And this is the outcome rather than everyone else's judgment is wrong <laughs> kind of thing. So yeah, thought work is, is something that I find helpful. 
I think for me, the the red flag that goes up to say, oh, I might need to challenge this is when I start hearing absolutes, everyone, always, everything. It's very rarely true that everything, always, everyone. And I think that's the sign. Oh, I need to dig into this. What What's really going on? Is there really evidence that this is true? Yeah. And the thing that is worth remembering and that I often have to remind myself is that when you're introducing more helpful thoughts to yourself and kinder ways of talking to yourself, it takes practice because our automatic thinking, you know, on a, on a physical level in the brain, they're really well used pathways. So your brain might instantly go there because it's, it's clear. It's, it's been used so many times. You've had those thoughts so many times. So when you first start doing thought work, you can't just have a nice thought once and then be like, great, I'm sorted now. And, um, and I will always be kind to myself. It's, it's practice and it's repetition so that you begin to deepen those neural pathways so that your instant thing isn't always the thing that's unhelpful, but starts to divert somewhere else. So if you can kind of um, keep that in mind that actually there's a there's a physical thing taking place in your brain in order to help you um, experience a more, you know, more nourishing thoughts, then just bear that in mind. Just because you slip up once and maybe you go into your, your um, automatic thoughts that might be unhelpful, that doesn't mean you're regressing. You're still actively working on, on addressing on addressing those things your brain gets down those uh unhelpful thoughts like it's you know 70 miles an hour down the motorway and then when you try when you try bringing in some kinder reasoning mm. it's like trudging through a swamp in in 30 year old wellington boots yeah. one of the one of the things that i did write about was how common it is and i think that there was some sort of there was a good sort of thing that not everyone is this sort of everyone's feeling it this right everyone's it's common amongst people um and for that reason i i wrote about treating it in a way that's um it's sort of treated like a friend rather than any because it'll come over and when it comes just treat it as someone who you can prove you know that i am actually good at this right so when they when he does when this when this imposter syndrome feeling does come it's 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 like hey you're here again. Let me show you how good I actually am. Let me show you how I can do this. And and take that as sort of your way of enjoying it, as proving your hard work. And, and that's how I personally have dealt with it. And that's how I think people should deal with it. I think it can be really common for people who experience this feeling of being an imposter. Often they're quite high achievers already. And they have the credibility they need to be where they are. So just a caution around like this idea of proving oneself or saying, look, I'm going to be even better now because then I'll, I'll prove this voice wrong. That can lead to burnout because sometimes the answer is this is sufficient now. And I have already worked really hard and I already have the qualifications I need and I have already proved this wrong. So being able to discern when it's helpful to, to do more or when it's helpful to say, 
thanks for that thought. I've come to the conclusion that I have actually done enough for this now. And then you can move on to something different. So just just being aware of, um, yeah, of not burning out because you're always trying to be better than you already are. Sometimes you're just good enough. Kyle, I think you have a couple more questions for the panel. I, yeah, I did. I, we've actually got about two more. Okay, that's great. And this one, this one's about anxiety. Um, it's the one I suffer with the most. I, I really struggle with social anxiety. Um, but I mean, I just it, it should be something that a lot of students do feel anxiety, especially University of London students, right? If you if you're doing a distance learning, you've got the anxiety of doing it online. The University of London is such a worldwide university with diverse cohorts. So you're, you're meeting a lot of different people. The degree itself, you know, it's it's it could be the career path that you're trying to go on. That could be very anxiety related. Um, and that's all this. This is outside of sort of assessments and and getting your your results. And that is really tense and that, and that can get very serious and and sometimes it can get so serious that that stops you from doing your day-to-day activities or even doing your your schoolwork so what 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 should students do when they're feeling really anxious and and their anxiety levels are are very high yeah that gosh Kyle really good really good question again and obviously I mean anxiety is one of the commonest mental health conditions Uh, and social anxiety I think we're seeing Uh, increasingly commonly in the student population certainly in our students who live in halls it's one of the more commonly uh, disclosed conditions when students are joining us Um, so you know really important topic for lots of the students listening to this podcast I'm I'm sure Um, and I guess the first thing to say is that there is a huge difference between worry and anxiety worry is a normal thing that we all experience some of us more often than others but it it, in general worry doesn't interfere with the way that we're living our lives it doesn't stop us from doing the things that we want to do and we should and we should do Um, whereas anxiety is something different with anxiety yes you know some of the feelings may be similar to those of worry but it stops us from it stops us in our tracks it says no you can't do that you must not do that because it's not safe to do that Um, and I think that is when anxiety becomes Uh, a a problem and the first thing I would say is that if someone is experiencing uh, worrying anxious thoughts that are stopping them from doing the things that they want to achieve then my 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 strong recommendation is to seek professional advice about that so you know whether that's going to mean um, receiving a talking therapy or in in some cases a medication type therapy I think it's it's essential to to get that professional help and of course that can be done alongside putting in place all of the kind of general well-being promoting uh, activities that we've already talked about today you know whether it's the five ways to well-being or something else and I know you know lots of people find exercise maybe hit maybe swimming maybe (laughs) running uh, and mindfulness meditation are great uh, for for anxiety uh, but not all of them is is for everyone which is why it's important to get the professional help too yeah and sometimes it's a case of there are lots of physical symptoms of anxiety as well and 
if that's accompanied by burnout, it might it may be that like a really intense workout isn't what you can do. If you're one one symptom is that your you know your whole body is in pain, you're aching, and um, you may not be able to get up and do a hit workout, and maybe or whatever it is, and maybe what's more helpful then is um, a restful activity, whether that's meditating or reading or breathing deeply for a few minutes. Um, depending on how things are showing up for you, you'll need different things. And again, almost always a combination of different things. Carl, I know your last question is um, a question that is um, something that's very serious. Um, but I thank you for wanting to raise this this topic um, for us to talk about. Um, would you like to... Uh, share your thoughts yeah so it's it's to do with suicidal ideation and and self-harm and it's it's my it's 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 honestly it's a personal experience um it's not me that's been thinking about it but it's me being in the same place as people who are thinking about it and who are self-harming and um it it is it is a situation as someone who is genuinely trying to help where I'm, I'm out of my depth. I, I, there is no piece of advice or I shouldn't be giving these people any sort of advice because it's, it's, it's completely out of my depth. It's, it's worth seeking a professional to, to talk to about these things. But um, if you're living with them, I think for me, at least, the, the first sort of experience and to, to speak to them is they, they don't want to seek professional help. They, they're not in the mindset of wanting to seek professional help. That's, that's, that's probably why they're self-harming and having these thoughts. So it was just, it was a question just to sort of get a better understanding of what can I do in that kind of situation where I am out of my depth and, and the, the best advice to give them is to seek professional help, but that's not the advice that they want to hear. So what, what can I do in that situation? Maybe to, to help them a little bit in, in the hopes that maybe then eventually they will, they will seek that professional help. I, I think um, the first thing to say is to, is is about being open to having a conversation and and spending time with this person because um, many people with suicidal thoughts uh, actually are in a really lonely place and may feel that the thoughts they're having are so alien, so unusual, so difficult that no one else could possibly connect with them in the place where they are right now and as someone who's helped lots of people through times of suicidal thoughts I know that's not true and it is possible to establish a, a real human connection with people even in this really kind of dark um, experience that they're having I think it's it's helpful if if you know that you're going to need to have a conversation like that to prepare for it in advance if you can so have to hand what are the professional sources of advice that you might be referring them to um, because it's it's a lot more difficult to say well I think you should get professional help but I I don't know where or how um, and also as part of that preparation setting aside the time and the place so that you really can spend time uh, to to understand what the what the person is is experiencing I think as well being sure not to minimize the things that they're experiencing so you know um, 
what can be really throwaway comments like, oh, don't be silly, or of course you don't want to kill yourself. Um, you know, they, they, they might even sound jovial or like it might be lightening the mood, but it, they can be really unhelpful things to say. On the flip side of that, not being so worried that you're going to say the wrong thing, that that you say nothing. And, you know, that um, it's actually very difficult to say the wrong thing, um, to be honest. I think the other kind of, the other two things I would say are, it's often helpful to think, well, what can you do to keep this person safe for now? We're not being asked to solve all of life's problems today, but actually, what do we need to do to make sure that this person is safe right now? Because most people with suicidal thoughts don't want to die. Um, they, they don't want to continue living the way that life is for them at this moment. And keeping them safe right now even if it's until the morning when there might be a different perspective is often the most important thing is often the most important thing to do and finally just to stress again that allowing them to feel that connection to another human being that they're not you know they haven't got some kind of alien um, thought process going on that they can be connected is probably the most important thing that we can do to add to that there's also this is this is what these kinds of podcasts are about and the resources that we're creating in terms of challenging um common misconceptions and there are a lot surrounding suicide and it's also worth knowing suicide thoughts are really common but they're not spoken about much so there's something there in in raising awareness that this topic feels really private and really taboo when actually it happens for a lot of people and one of the misconceptions is that people who are feeling suicidal don't want help and it's not true so in embedding that within yourself having that knowledge that if someone has um disclosed something to you and that they're feeling suicidal there is a part of them that wants help so if you can, you know, have that belief, I mean, a big thing that that drives me is that I, I believe, I believe in, in people and, and their want to heal and their want to live a better life. And like Adrian said, we don't always have the language to say, I don't want the life that I have right now, but I do want to continue living differently in another way. So being able to, to point that out and have that as as a base understanding for yourself and for others um, that it doesn't always necessarily mean someone wants to end end their life um, and you don't have to have all the answers you know there's also if if you're caught unexpected for example you can suggest why don't we look into this together why don't we both sit down and do a search online of crisis support lines so you don't have to be an expert. You can just be a person with them who isn't judging them, but is there to, to be alongside them. So there isn't always a huge pressure to be a fixer or a rescuer. You can be alongside them and learning together as well. 
There is some there is some free interactive online training offered by Zero Suicide Alliance, which is it's a UK charity, but the training is accessible around the world uh, and is is completely free. It takes twenty minutes to do, and it's actually really good training, and I, I really strongly recommend it to anyone who might be having this conversation. Someone might explicitly say to you that they're having thoughts of suicide. Or someone might come to you in distress and say things like, I don't want to be here anymore. I want to disappear. I can't go on. And if you're concerned, ask the question, are you feeling suicidal? Because if someone doesn't feel able to say that, but that's how they're feeling, you're giving them permission. you're, You're breaking the taboo. You're saying this is something that we can talk about. Um, there's a misconception that if you talk about suicide then it it might somehow influence people to to take that action it's not the case Um, asking about it directly can be really helpful thank you so much everybody for um, your insights and the questions Carl and being open with us and with our listeners about how you struggle and some of the things that you know you feel need to be said um and i know will help everybody that listens um you know we're all we're all learning um you know in all content that we're you know uh, consuming so thank you everybody for um this really great really insightful conversation i've 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 really learned a lot myself um we have got some other questions from students, um, but before we kind of get to that, and it was talking about, you know, we have been talking about the differences with mental health and well-being, light and shade in every facet of our lives. Um, so when we talk about mental health, a lot of times we think it's a heavy topic um, and it is serious and it is very important. Um, and, but there is, in this space as well that we're not just talking about struggle we're also talking about taking care and looking after ourselves and what we can do in our lives to enhance our lives and our well-being and I wondered Kyle um as a student as you know would you have any advice or any or any anything you'd like to share um on how you motivate yourself any advice or encouragement that you have for fellow students around well-being, uh, it's gonna be hard. Let's just let's just get that out of the way, okay? It, it it'll be hard. No path or journey worth being on is easy. It's not gonna be straightforward either. It'll twist. It'll turn. It'll go down different avenues. It's not gonna be what you expect. Uh, things will go against you. Sometimes even your own luck. You are gonna be tested. It will be hard. It's gonna be uncomfortable. But that's just it. You should be comfortable in being uncomfortable. You know these challenges are going to come. I just told you they would so you can prepare and you'll be ready for them. These hurdles are just that. Hurdles. They're meant to be overcome. So why fear them? They're meant to slow you down, not stop you. And that's another thing. Don't just compare your hurdle sizes to other people's. You're the only person that you need to be better than. And that's the only person you need to impress. Someone once told me, Um, imagine writing a story about the journey you've been on wouldn't it be a more interesting story 
if you spoke about how you overcame adversity. There is a future you at the end of this that is cheering for you to get there. It's a long journey. You're in this for the long run. So take it slow. You're not in a rush, one step at a time. Even if it is just one step, even if it's the bare minimum, it's still a step. I like using the metaphor of a ladder, right? And you're trying to get to the top. There's only one way to the top, and that's to get to the top. Just keep going. Opening one door leaves three more to be explored. So explore it. Go. Try. Just be you. It's cringy to say, but it doesn't make it any less true. You have something to offer this world. You're good at what you do, and no one's better at being you than you. There is a payoff. There is a reward at the end for you and for the world. So don't stop. I'll be proud. The people around you will be proud. But more importantly, you'll be proud that you saw it through. You said you'd do it and you did it. You actually did it. I believe in you. Just make sure you believe in yourself as well. My gosh, I feel so uplifted. <laughs> like, yes. I'm thinking I want that wording up on my wall or something yeah. somewhere, like a mantra where I can look at that. Um, yeah, please start a motivational speeches youtube channel or something <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> oh carl that was amazing um thank you i just my last thing to do is to thank you for coming on the podcast today um it's been so great like i said to hear your questions and your insights and that final like motivational kind of really you know amazing kind of thoughts and insight into you know how the journey as a student and as a human being you know is for all of us and um yeah i really really like that bit so um i'm gonna say bye for now um i'm sure kyle our student blogger and our supporter for student life at the university of london will hear more from you um but for now thank you so much okay so um we're now going to bring in some questions from other students um, and these were sent to us via a form we posted on social media as part of the community support that we do on our social channels. Um, so thank you to everybody who has submitted questions. I think we've only got time for a few now. Um, so I'm going to um, start off. Um, this is a question from David. He's studying um, the LLM in Papua New Guinea and his question to the panel is does everyone have some degree of unhealthy mental health um so i coming from a, a clinical background I'm, I'm medically trained i think definitions are really helpful sometimes sometimes they're not and sometimes they are and i think maybe in answering david's question a definition could be helpful um, so the, the World Health Organization definition of mental health is actually quite a positive definition. It talks about uh, us having the ability to cope with the normal stresses of life. Uh, it talks about being able to work productively and uh, and to realize our potential. And you know, in, throughout a normal life, all of us experience fluctuations in how well we feel we are dealing with the stresses of life, how productive we feel we're being, uh, and whether we feel we're realising our potential. That's completely normal. And you could you could sort of see that as being well-being. Yes, you're still coping, but maybe you're not coping as well as you would like or as well as you're used to coping. Sometimes 
something happens and maybe our ability to cope with those stresses falls behind what the World Health Organization was thinking when they wrote this definition. And that's when a doctor might diagnose a mental illness such as depression or anxiety or schizophrenia. Maybe you might have some treatment. And of course, then once you're on treatment, you still have the diagnosis. But you could be back up to coping with everything completely fine. And yes, okay, so now you have this label called depression or anxiety or schizophrenia or whatever else it is. But you're realizing your potential, you're working great, and you're coping with all the stresses of, of life. So I don't know if that answers David's question. It would be great if David could be here and tell us. Um, but I hope it goes some way. Okay, um, thank you for that. We've got a question now from Amna, um, studying the NLB in Pakistan. And the question is, how do we keep ourselves sane while studying and grieving? And sadly, our student is, studi- is grieving the loss of her mother. Georgina, could you take that? Yeah, so... First of all, so sorry for your loss and the grief that you're experiencing, especially while studying. And it's something that I resonate with. I lost my mom while I was studying at college and it was tough. It's, it's really tough when you go through something so significant and, and life changing in that way. And you're you're full of intense emotions. And I'd say you need to be able to create space for your grief and accept and acknowledge that that experience is going to affect the pace that you're working at, how much you can concentrate or focus and that that's okay. Like it, that's going to happen. And what you can think about is how do I accommodate that? So being really kind to yourself and not having the same expectations that you would if if you weren't grieving and that might mean you adjust your your schedule so that you only study in short bursts so you do little and often or it might mean there are times where you're studying and you want to carry on and there's this idea in grief which is well accepted which is that we grow around our grief so our grief stays the same it's always big but our life can grow around it. And as humans, we can and do all the time build really meaningful lives in adversity and in loss. So it could be helpful to think, you know, you, you started this program, what's what's the wider meaning of that for you? Is that because you're creating a life that's brighter and you want to pursue more opportunities and letting yourself have the hard days and letting yourself also have the days where you're able to do things more as you'd like to. So thinking about what you need and also letting people know, letting your loved ones know, maybe maybe you've got something that you need to study for, maybe you've got an exam that you've chosen to take. How can the people in your life help you could they be bringing you dinner? Could they be helping out with practical tasks? Could they be someone that you sit down with and you go through points with? Um, 
is there a space where you can talk to a professional of some kind or get peer support like talk campus or wherever it is and if you're studying at a teaching center for example letting your tutors know that you're you're going through this if you haven't already so it's really about being very gentle with yourself and knowing that the grief will take it's going to take up time and it's going to take up space the next question that's coming is from a a BSc accounting and finance student and um, their question is I was diagnosed with schizophrenia at a young age and occasionally I experienced the following kind of symptoms seeing people patterns objects and lights how can this symptom of seeing people end because it's so scary your advice or recommendations please I'm going to come to you Adrian yeah, thank you, thank you, Joe. And what um, what the student is is describing is um, appears to be visual hallucinations. So that is um, seeing things differently than how the people around them might see things. And um, hallucinations are a, a recognised symptom of of schiz- schizophrenia, um, and can be visual. They can be uh, auditory things that you hear. They can be tactile things that you feel in your body. Um, alongside other symptoms too and I think all of us can appreciate how frightening that experience could be. Um, I think the the advice to someone in this situation has got to be um, to really keep your medical practitioner, the person, uh, whether it's a psychiatrist or a general practitioner who looks after you and your uh, your condition, to keep keep them up to date with what's happening and what your experience of your symptoms is um, because uh, schizophrenia is is very treatable uh, it's most commonly treated with um, with drugs with medications uh, and it can take sometimes some time to find the right dose and the right type of medication um, but really it's it's to hang on in there um, let your medical practitioner know what's happening and keep working with them Uh, until you find the treatment that is most effective for you. So thank you all for listening and to our guests for coming on and um, for talking about mental health. We really hope that it's been useful for you to hear. Remember that you can visit our wellbeing page and that's on our student portal and that has all the wellbeing resources and um, the free use of the peer support service that we mentioned and that actually Kyle is a, um, a buddy on and that is Talk Campus. And also within Talk Campus, there is an integrated crisis support helpline, which um, if you need it, it is available to you 24-7, 365 days a year. So until next time, take care, everybody. And thank you again so much to Adrian and to Georgina. Thanks so much. Thanks, Jane. Thanks for listening. And thanks to Kyle, Adrian, Georgina and Joe. All the resources mentioned in this episode are linked to in the show description.